0: Judgment Studios Studios. Growing up I marveled at the kids in high school Who insisted on standing out The ones sporting Spiky, multicolored hair Vampire makeup Platform boots Wearing the whole ensemble to history class They rejected the social order even as I tried so desperately to work myself into it. me casting about like a new arrival from a different country because basically, for all intents and purposes, I was foreign. My home, my church, the places where my family spent the majority of our time was a land apart from high school. Where not only did our apostle Herbert W. Armstrong routinely speak to the Lord God of the universe, the Lord God of the universe spoke back. Every week in services, we learn the end times were nigh in our secret world. Devils were cast out of sinners, and healings were performed in the name of Jesus with an anointing cloth and the holy olive oil. Come out, spirit of cancer. Be gone. Wicked chest cold. Be gone in the name of Jesus the Christ. I did not speak of this land in high school. No, instead I put on a mask and disparaged other religious kids as them crazy holy rollers. Just in case somebody mistook me for them. Today in Snap Judgment, I'm gonna ask you to put on a very different type of mask. We probably present No Angel. My name is from Washington. Be gone foul spirits. When you're listening, the Snap Judgment. Stamp judgment. are lots of places that good law-abiding people don't get to see and today we're going into several of them as such sensitive listeners should note this story does reference incidents of police violence because snap producer Bo Walsh brings us a story about one man going deeper than he ever thought possible snap judgment
1: Sets up to throw a quick one, gets it
2: away, and it's caught! Great catch by Jay Dobbins.
1: Goes down to 5 big play, gets it completed. In the spring of 1985, a young wide receiver out of the University of Arizona named Jay Dobbins walked onto the football field at the NFL's pre-draft combine, hoping for a chance to make it to the big time.
2: I got paired with a couple guys that I'd never heard of, same size, same build as me. Uh, one guy was from Cutstown State, which I'd never heard of. There was another guy from a small school in Mississippi. So we start running around during these drills. And 10 minutes into the workout, I realized I wasn't going to be a professional football player. I couldn't do what these guys could do. I wasn't as athletic. I couldn't run as fast. I couldn't jump as high. I wasn't as skilled. And I was like, man, I never heard of these dudes and I can't keep up with them. How am I ever going to make it in the league? Well, as it turned out, the kid from Cutstown State was a player named Andre Reed, who went on to play 15 years in the NFL for the Buffalo Bills, was on all their Super Bowl teams, is in the Hall of Fame now. And the kid from the small school in Mississippi went to Mississippi Valley State. It was Jerry Rice, arguably the greatest football player to ever put on a helmet
1: and shoulder pads. In college, Jay had gotten used to crowds screaming for him and was addicted to the adrenaline rush. But now, with his NFL dreams crushed, he didn't have a plan B.
2: The television show, Miami Vice had become very popular. We had never seen a cop show like that. Everything had been uniformed policemen and detectives responding to crime scenes. And then Miami Vice shows up and it's this undercover world and Sonny Crockett's wearing a Hugo Boss suit and he's driving a Lamborghini around South Beach and he's meeting with these drug kingpins and there's tons of cocaine on the table. And he's got models bringing him mojitos at mansions and I was like man you know what I I, like I can do that I think I can do that this is super interesting it's super challenging and so in kind of a hokey way I was actually inspired into law enforcement by Hollywood and by the vision that Hollywood had created for me of what
1: a life in undercover might be. Jay was 26 years old when he was hired by ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And his first week, it was TV-worthy. I got hired on a Monday. I got sworn
2: in, raised my right hand, took my oath, was given a badge and, and a temporary gun. I hadn't been through any training academy. On the fourth day, on a Thursday, I was part of a arrest scenario. Like, far removed from the point of attack. I, I was I was on a perimeter position more as probably an observer than anything else. Um, the veteran agents, you know, had included me, but had included me graciously to, to give me a little taste of what the job was like.
1: The plan was to arrest a man who'd just gotten out of prison and was rumored to be in possession of firearms. We arrive at the suspect's
2: residence and we're waiting on him, and... He pulls up on a motorcycle and gets off and the agents start exiting their vehicles and closing in on him. Well the suspect sees the cops coming and he makes a run for it. And just very spontaneously for me, I just joined in the chase. The suspect is running through the neighborhood and he knows the neighborhood, like we didn't. This was a really run down trailer park on the very far south edge of Tucson. And so I'm like closing in on this kid and gaining ground on him and then the the guy vanished. And as we're searching the area, the suspect who was hidden popped up out of nowhere and had his gun on me and put me in a chokehold and had a gun to my head. And started moving me towards a vehicle that was there on the scene the my partners now realizing what's happened start to close in the suspect pushed me into the it was a two-door monte carlo the suspect pushed me into the front seat pushed the seat forward climbed in behind me the gun never leaving my head and he's screaming at me to to leave to get out get him out of there like i was i was going to drive his escape so as i went to start the car I pulled the car keys out of the ignition I dropped them to the floorboard and I just said man I dropped the keys and as I leaned forward to grab them the suspects gun came off my head it gave my partners an opportunity at the suspect so for five seconds it was complete chaos in the process with the suspect getting shot, the gun had moved off my head and onto my back, and he fired a round point-blank into my back, in between my spine and my shoulder blade. The round uh, went through my lung, it narrowly missed my heart, and it exited uh, the left side of my chest. get out of the car, I fall to the ground, and after four days on the job, I was laying in the dirt and the dog shit of this trailer park, bleeding to death. That event was both a blessing and a curse. The blessing, obviously, is that I survived it. It brought me some notoriety with ATF that this young agent who was just on the job was shot after four days, came back to work very quickly, like was enthusiastic to come back and try again and do the job. And so there was a lot of good things that came from it. Probably the bad thing that came from it is that it gave me a false
1: sense that I was bulletproof. I felt like I was invincible. Jay started taking on cases that others often deemed too dangerous or impossible. I had solely focused my energy and attention
2: on undercover work. That's what I loved. That's what I wanted to do. That is why I came to ATF. And I tried to touch every undercover investigation that was available to me. Gun cases from pop guns to shoulder-launched rockets, drug deals from street-level dope to cartel-level dope, I did gang infiltrations, one-on-one cases, portrayed myself to be a contract killer in
1: murder-for-hire cases. After 15 years of undercover work, Jay had thought he'd seen it all as a special agent. But then came an opportunity that would define his career. Operation Black Biscuit was my infiltration of the Hells Angels Motorcycle Gang. The Hells Angels Motorcycle Corporation, a worldwide biker organization, With over 400 charters spread throughout 59 countries and five continents, they are the largest motorcycle club in the world. A string of violent incidents began to occur in the five years since the club had arrived in Arizona. Jay Dobbins and ATF wanted to build a case to prove that the Angels were a criminal organization, indictable under RICO, the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. In Arizona and in the West Coast, The Hells Angels were
2: operating with impunity. The plan was to be side by side with the Hells Angels, to get next to them, to try to figure out who was ordering the violence within the Hells Angels, who was executing
1: the violence within the Angels. At the beginning of Jay's career, deceiving people while undercover had made him uneasy. But over time, lying and misrepresenting himself to suspects simply became what he did to do his job well. And sometimes creating a persona for Jay was too easy. Jaybird Bird Davis was actually very
2: close to who I am. Uh, maybe actually too close at times. I was nicknamed Jaybird Bird as a kid. Davis was my grandmother's maiden name. And ultimately, the cover story that I used was built over time and experience. I I played a debt collector. I played a gun runner. I always had
1: two guns on me. Jay and his team, two cops and a couple informants, posed as members of a small motorcycle gang from Tijuana, and he began making introductions through a series of gun deals. By the way I carried myself and
2: presented myself You know, suspects began to assume that I did contract killings, and then I started getting solicited for murder for hires. When the Hells Angels infiltration actually kicked off in the Bullhead City, Arizona area, I'd already had a reputation as a criminal
1: on the streets there. The next move for Jay Bird would be to attend an annual biker rally called Too Broke for Sturgis. The whole team hopped on their Harleys and rode into a northern Arizona campground. Man, it was a big event.
2: Tents and vendors and music and we were turning a lot of heads. Like people hadn't seen us. They were very familiar with each other. They were very unfamiliar with us. Like, Who are these dudes? Like where did they show up at? The Hells Angels had a tent and they had a their own isolated area within the party and A lot of people, most of the people, were intimidated to even approach. Like, man, you didn't go into there. You were walking into the lion's den to go around and socialize and approach the Hells Angels, you know, under their tent, under their banner. A Hells Angel member came up and said, Bad Bob wants to invite you over to the Mesa Clubhouse. And we were being a little bit coy, like, you know, okay, thank you, you know, we'll see. And then he corrected his invitation, he goes, you need to understand something, it's not an invitation, it's an order. Bad Bob was the president of the Hells Angels Mesa Charter. He had influence, he was a shot caller. If we were gonna operate the first pass, the first check was gonna be through Bad Bob. We show up at the Mesa Clubhouse and park our bikes and are backing our bikes into some parking spots and we're greeted by A couple members with guns out and baseball bats. And, you know, that's how they say hello. During this case, I open-carried twin Glock pistols in a shoulder holster. So I had a gun hanging under each arm almost everywhere I went. So we come to the front door at the Mesa clubhouse, and we're getting ready to enter. And the member that was working the door, he said, Sorry, Bert. He goes, You can't bring those in here. And a couple of my partners had already stepped inside. And I knew that at this point it was critical. I had to take a stand. And I just replied, I don't take my guns off for anybody, not even for the Hells Angels. If you think you're the only people out there that have enemies, you're wrong. So I'll let my brothers go walk through and say hello and party with you guys. I'll just wait out here on the sidewalk. If Bad Bob wants to come and speak to me, he can speak to me out here, but I'm not taking my guns off. And there was a bit of a standoff there, and the doorman, he said, Bert, I don't make the rules. And we're just kind of eyeballing each other toe-to-toe, neither side willing to give in. And then Bad Bob appeared, and he said, I do make the rules come on in, and he put his arm over my shoulder and brought me in the clubhouse. Just the way he walked us around his clubhouse, like his sense of pride in that gang, like there was no fake in it. It was entirely sincere. There were trophies and banners and pictures that documented the Hells Angels' history and their heroes. Bob said, I know you guys are running guns. Uh, I know you're taking guns south. I know you're involved in the criminal underworld. I just need to know what's going on. I don't want to have surprises. If you're doing something, you can do what you want. You have my permission to run your black market business however you see fit. Like, don't be keeping secrets from me. I don't want to hear about problems. I don't want to be dealing with your issues because I have vouched for you.
0: Jay Bird's got one foot in the door, but will his cover story stick? Stay tuned. Back to Snap Judgment, the No Angel episode. Our story follows an undercover officer and as such contains descriptions of violence. When we last left Jay, he'd made a powerful ally and a high-ranking member of the club as he began to enter the outlaw biker underworld. Snap Judgment.
2: Bad Bob was vouching for us, and Bad Bob was vouching for us to very influential Hell's Angels, his, his brothers, and saying, Hey, man, you need to meet these guys. They're, I believe in them. They're good dudes. They're, you know, we want them around. They support us. So that introduction, that statement on our behalf made things much easier for us. We would go and introduce ourselves to new people, to new members, and they'd be like, man, I know who you are. Man, I heard about you. Man, welcome. Come on. Let's go have a beer. Starting small and being relatively unthreatening allowed us to get our feet on the ground, establish ourselves as being solid, and then try to expand from there. It wasn't like we showed up and wanted to do a a 50-key methamphetamine deal with people that they didn't know but to buy an eight ball of meth. Instead of looking for a tractor trailer full of M-16s,
1: you know, buying a pistol on the street. With every low-level street deal, Jay and his crew looked more believable, so much that they showed up on the radar of the local Bullhead City police, who had no idea that Jay Bird Davis was an undercover agent. I found out about their interest...
2: Through a member of the task force who was going to uh, statewide criminal gang meetings and it was being discussed at those gang meetings. Hey, Bullhead City is, you know, is looking at this new group of guys up here. He came back with a flyer that just basically said, like, beware, these guys are armed and dangerous. But the flyer had a picture of me on it that was taken at a traffic stop. Now we knew we had to be careful, we knew that Bullhead was on
1: us, but we also knew like, hey, even the cops are buying this. In just a few months of Operation Black Biscuit, Jay had gotten in quicker and deeper than he thought possible, and evidence was piling up to build the case. We were getting guns, we were getting drugs, we were getting explosives, we were getting
2: contraband. The gun runner role Was beautiful in that it let me come back to someone who I'd purchased a gun from and ask for more and ask for volume and try to find guns that maybe someone needed to ditch or get rid of, whether it be stolen or it had been used in a crime or it had been
1: used in a homicide. Jay was working 70 hour weeks living out of an undercover house in Bullhead City. Five hours away in Tucson, he had a wife and two children. But the deeper Jay got into the case, he was thinking less and less about his family and was becoming more and more the man he was pretending to be.
2: I never stopped being burnt. I didn't turn it off when I came home and then turn it back on when I got back on the streets. I wasn't Jay Dobbins' husband, father, friend on Saturdays and Sundays. And then Monday through Friday was this smoking and joking gangster. I just didn't do a good job of separating those two different lifestyles. I had been, you know, in role and with the gangsters for, you know, an extended period of time, probably a couple months. And I came home and I was in my street role and my wife pulled me aside and she said, you are not allowed to be gone for an extended period of time. And then walk in this house and treat me and your kids like we're street people. In my self-defense at that time, I told her, I said, I am not a light switch. I can't turn this on and off. I have to be all in. People that dabble in this, people who are not entirely committed, end up dead. I'm not a light switch. And then her response was, I understand that. But when you're around me and when you're around our kids and you come to this house, you better install a dimmer switch and dial that attitude down. And if you can't, don't come back. You know, I would come home and do the bare minimum that I had to do to keep my family running. I'd pay the bills, pat the kids on the head have a cup of coffee with my wife. But in my heart, in the back of my head, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be out with the gangsters. I wanted to be smoking and joking. The danger and the violence and the intensity of that world had become my heroine. I needed that fix. And the mundane pace of being at home and a family man
1: wasn't getting me high. So Jay left his family that weekend and came back less and less each month. Back among the Hells Angels, Jay Bird's reputation was spreading. At the time, there were six active Hells Angels charters throughout the state of Arizona, and several of them were sizing him up as a recruit to join their family. Bottom line is, is I wanted in. I, I started
2: making decisions to get inside because that is where I felt like I could do the most damage— And I started positioning myself for membership. When the various Hells Angels charters started recruiting us based on us doing our jobs well, like, man, it it felt pretty special. Like I was playing the prom queen.
1: It was like everybody wanted to take me on a date. But Jay's superiors at ATF didn't actually want him to become a Hells Angel. They thought it was a step too far. But Jay wanted in. I desperately wanted to get
2: my patch. I, I wanted to be the first guy, the first law man that had infiltrated the Hell's Angels. It had never been done before. My focus, selfishly, had evolved from really trying to gain evidence and further the investigation,
1: and it had become personal for me to achieve that status. And then Jay got a break. The Skull Valley Charter in Arizona accepted him on probation. He would need to spend at least a year as a prospect proving his loyalty to the club before receiving his patch and being made an official member.
2: You were not going to be made a member any sooner than one year, and there was no guarantee that on your 366th day you were going to be given a patch. One of the big mistakes that you could make as a Hell's Angel when you're a prospect If someone ever asked you, like, hey, man, like, when are you going to get your membership? When are you going to be a full patch? If somehow you had that date marked on your calendar, man, you were going to get throat punched. The answer
1: was, as long as it takes. Joining the club as a prospect meant giving up control. If you wanted in, you had to be all in. When we were operating
2: independently, we could come and go as we pleased. We could go where we wanted, when we wanted. Uh, we weren't subject to any orders. We weren't subject to anybody else's authority. Then once we got on the inside and and were prospecting with the Hells Angels, now they controlled that. Now they told us where to be, when to be there. It was non-negotiable. The Skull Valley Charter, the president uh, was an old, old-school Hells Angel, very traditional. In his views of the Hells Angels, how the Hells Angels should look and act and conduct themselves— and I showed up one day at Skull Valley with flip flops on, and he dressed me up and down. I don't know who you think you are. I don't know who. You, I don't know what you're used to. I don't know where you've been. No member in my charter is going to wear flip flops. Like you get your boots on. I don't want to ever see that again. We are not the West Coast California Hells Angels. We are the Skull Valley Hells
1: Angels, and we are gonna look it and we are gonna act the part. But Jay never really loved riding a motorcycle. And now he was going on 300 mile rides across the desert. What I really thought is when I
2: die in this case, I'm gonna die hitting a telephone pole on my motorcycle at 100 miles an hour. They only know full throttle. So when you're riding with them, and you're riding in a pack. At times, when they do it right, it's beautiful, it's orchestrated, it's high speed. 80, 90, 100 miles an hour, 18 inches apart. It's beautiful to watch. It's beautiful to be a part of. In essence, they're the blue angels on motorcycles.
1: Being able to keep up wasn't limited to riding motorcycles. It also applied to partying, and the party never stopped. When you
2: entered a bar with the Hells Angels as their friends, as their associates, many times it was like the parting of the Red Sea. They pretty much run every joint that they walk in. When they really started, like, hammering shots, and some of these guys, I mean, can drink, you know, a handle of whiskey all on their own, and you wouldn't know it. Um, I couldn't. I was never a good drinker. I would get a bottle of beer, a dark bottle, and keep it, you know, mostly empty. And then I would uh, take a shot, bang a shot back with them, chase it with my beer. What I'd do is I would spit that shot back into my beer bottle. And then they'd line up the next shot, and I'd bang that one back. And so in their eyes, man, I was going shot for shot with them.
1: Throughout the case, Jay grew tight with many of the Hells Angels. He slept in their homes, held their babies, spent holidays with them, but never lost sight of the fact that he'd eventually have to bring them down. No one, none of us, is ever comfortable
2: with betrayal just because you're in an undercover role. I never set out to ruin someone's life. I was very much less concerned with being hurt by the members of the Angels. What I became concerned with was being a victim caught in the middle of a gang war. The Banditos motorcycle gang, predominant in Texas, was a very powerful, a very violent, threatening motorcycle gang, and they were adversarial with the Hells Angels. Information came in that the Banditos were going to be in Las Vegas, Nevada, and they were going to be there without having requested permission or getting authority from the Hells Angels who considered Las Vegas and Nevada their territory. So I was called into the Skull Valley Clubhouse. I was told to bring all my hardware, which meant whatever guns or knives or weapons I might have, without much detail. I show up and I receive a briefing that said, you're gonna go to Vegas. The banditos are gonna be throwing a party. And when they show up for this party, before they even get their kickstands down, you better shoot them off their bikes. And we're gonna be watching you from a distance. If you don't shoot them, we are going to shoot you. There was no nonsense here. These guys were like ordering the murder of some rivals. In the journey between Prescott and Las Vegas, which is plus or minus three hours, I got on the phone with my case agent and briefed him on the situation. Man, I'm heading to Vegas, and these guys expect me to kill banditos. This is going to be a—this is—man, it's going to turn out bad. So the case agent, he rallied up with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department and orchestrated a traffic stop of the banditos before they could arrive at the location that was targeted for this assault. But I was there. I went to the location. I was standing there pacing, waiting, ready for the banditos to show up. The Hells Angels were watching from a distance. In the eyes of the Hells Angels, when it ended, when there was the banditos never showed, they didn't know why they didn't show. They didn't know that we had circumvented their arrival at this location through law enforcement and that it was never going to take place. All they knew is what they saw, which was Jay Bird standing there, waiting and ready to throw down on these guys man i came home to a hero's welcome
0: after the break can jay avoid becoming the very thing he's trying to stop stay tuned Back to Snap Judgment. My name is Gunn Washington, and you're listening to the No Angel episode. When we last left Jay, his quest for membership in the club had become an obsession. And sensitive listeners, Jay's story does contain graphic imagery and descriptions of violence. But his real struggle is trying to maintain two lives. His made-up biker persona and his real life as husband and father. Snap Judgment.
2: My son, who was a little boy at the time, for years I would come home from operations and when I was ready to turn around and get back to work, he would run out in the yard and he would grab a rock. He'd grab a little stone and he'd come running up to me, Dad, Dad, I got something for you. And so for years, hundreds of times, my son, who was seven, eight years old at the time, gave me these stones. And, man, I I kept at least one with me at all times. I had one in my pocket. They were in the saddlebags of my motorcycle. They were in my undercover car. They were in my undercover house. I was handing them out to my partners. And I was saying, man, like, I don't know what kind of blessing Jackie is putting on these stones, but you have to keep one of these with you. We're operating and surviving and thriving in this tornado of violence. Man, keep this good luck charm with you. And there was a day we were getting ready to finish up and we had one last big operation to perform and I'm getting ready to leave and this routine was the same Jackie comes running up dad don't leave and he gives me a stone and he goes I've been saving this one for you it's special it's shaped like a heart and you know I was a 40 plus year old man trying to comfort like this little boy and I said dude like all these good luck charms you've given me, man. I'm almost done. And as soon as I finish, I'm going to do all those things with you that I should have been doing. We're going to play catch. We're going to go swimming. We're going to ride bikes. I'm going to help coach your little league team. I'm going to do all these things that, as a dad, I should have been doing for you. But it's due to your good luck charms. I said, these things work so good, I've given them to all my friends. And this little boy is standing in my driveway and... He's got like no shirt, no shoes on. Um, Tears start running down his cheeks. And he said, Dad, they were only for you. You should have never given them away. And I didn't know um, how to react to that. And he said, Dad, those were for you to put in your pocket. And every time you think someone is going to hurt you, I wanted you to be able to reach in there and touch it and know that I was there to help you fight back. That is what I had done to my son.
1: Jay needed all the protection he could get, as the Angels were in the middle of a long-standing blood feud with a rival club, the Mongols. The story was that the Mongols were founded by a group of Latino men who originally tried to join the Hell's Angels in the 1970s and were rejected because of their heritage. As the Mongols grew throughout the country, confrontations between the rival clubs became more and more violent.
2: I had accepted that I wasn't going to make it through this. I just, I had accepted it. I wasn't comfortable with it. I was doing everything I could to avoid it. I was, I didn't want that. I wasn't seeking it. I didn't have a death wish, but I accepted, man, you're not going to make it through this. Uh, And that came from just living day to day as a gangster in the midst of a gang war. Eight or 10 people I knew on one level or another were murdered during this time frame. I, I figured my day was coming. Is it coming from a bullet? Is it coming from a bike crash? Is it coming from a beating because there's a crack in my story? I knew it was coming. I just didn't know where from.
1: Jay's superiors at the ATF could see how close he was to cracking the case, but also the danger he was in. Like any investigator at any point, in any case, is always looking at,
2: how much evidence do I have? How much more do I need before this case is prosecutable? Before you feel like you have enough to take our case, to take our evidence and our testimony
1: into a courtroom and win. The one thing Jay knew was that once he was a member, the evidence would just get better and he'd get the real dirt on the Hells Angels. But the ATF couldn't afford to wait months for that to happen. So Jay started to wrestle with an idea that he thought could speed things up. When I first started hanging around the Hells Angels,
2: I asked, what do I do if I see a Mongol? The response to me was very simple. It's your job to kill him. I saved that information. I put it in my back pocket until I needed it. There was a point in time where I offered to kill a Mongol. I said I had intelligence on a Mongol that was in Mexico, and I wanted to go kill him on behalf of the club. That plan was embraced. I was provided the murder weapon. I was provided instructions on how to do it. I went to Mexico. I found a Mongol in a tavern, captured him, beat him with a baseball bat, duct taped his hands and ankles, buried in a shallow grave, took pictures of it, cut the vest off of them. You know, then I took the bloody vest and the Polaroid pictures back to the Hells Angels. Anyone given that evidence, anyone presented that story would be running the other way, dialing 911. The Hells Angels embraced it. They loved it. They honored it. Ultimately, what they didn't know at the time, it was all a bluff. It was a ruse. It was street theater. The reality of it is, is that we took a member of our task force, we dressed him in a Mongol vest, we dug a shallow grave, we duct taped him, we used cow blood and cow brains in the grave next to his head to make it appear that he'd been beaten and shot. We took pictures of it, we used a homicide detective who was very familiar with crime scenes. And made sure that it looked appropriate, that it wasn't overdone or underdone. And then, you know, we took all this self-developed, fabricated evidence of a murder back to the Hells Angels. After the evidence was presented, a member draped his Hells Angels cut over my shoulders and said, Hey, welcome to the gang. You've proved yourself. You took care of business. You showed that you understand what it takes to be a Hells Angel.
1: Welcome to the club. But a few weeks after Jay Bird was welcomed to the club, the ATF shut down Operation Black Biscuit. After 21 months, it seemed there was enough evidence for an indictment and prosecution. The financial costs of the case were mounting, but perhaps most importantly, Jay says the ATF feared he'd gone too far. Ultimately, what I thought was this brilliant Mongol murder plan probably is what ended the case
2: because The decision was made, the violence has grown too great. Like you are too close to the violence. We are no longer willing to risk a human asset to leave you in. My argument was like, I've positioned myself to now do the greatest amount of damage. The access that I will have as a member is going to open up to me. I can go wherever and do
1: whatever. I will follow your instructions. But the shot callers did not see it that way. Even though Jay felt there was more evidence to gather, ATF had built a prosecutable case, which resulted in 52 arrests, with 16 members being indicted under RICO. The various charges included murder, drug trafficking, trafficking and stolen property, RICO conspiracy, and numerous felons in possession of a firearm. In total, over 650 guns had been collected as pieces of evidence. But when it came time to bring the case to court, It somehow wasn't enough. The bureaucracy got us.
2: The prosecutors started arguing with the case agents on how to present the case in a courtroom. When it was all said and done and the prosecution kind of came unraveled, charges were dismissed, charges were reduced. You know, some people took a full lick, but others got off easy. Others got off really with
1: nothing. As living a double life came to an end and Jaybird Davis returned to being Jay Dobbins, he found out leaving the Hells Angels behind was not going to be
2: so easy. When the reports were delivered to the Hells Angels defense team that J. Bird Davis, the debt collector, hitman, gunrunner, was in reality Jay Dobbins, an ATF agent, like it was out at that point now they knew that j bird was a fed i was continuing to work undercover i was out at a bar one night with another undercover agent and i ran into one of the hell's angel defendants and then the hell's angel proceeded to say we know where you live we followed you we know who you are we know where your kids go to school he said i know you love that little boy someday you're gonna wait for him to get off the school bus and he's not gonna he said, you are gonna spend the rest of your life running from the Hell's Angels.
1: Jay packed up his entire family and relocated to California. But when his location was exposed, he had to move again.
2: There were murder contracts placed on me. The contracts had been farmed out to the Aryan Brotherhood, to the MS-13, to a street gang in Los Angeles. The threats and the intelligence around him were deemed as credible. They were verified. My complaint is that ATF didn't pursue an investigation of them. You have to chase these into the ground. You have to be detectives and figure this out.
1: And my agency didn't want anything to do with that. Jay and his family moved 16 times over the next five years. Then on August 10th of 2008, in a Tucson, Arizona suburb, during the middle of the night while his family was asleep, their home was set on fire.
2: My house was attacked by arsonists. It was burned to the ground. A real-time threat had actually taken place, and I thought to myself, now they have to react. Now they have to deal with this. And I was wrong. They didn't. That ultimate abandonment and betrayal that I felt, which stung so hard in the beginning, now when I look back on it, I'm like, you know what, Jay? You had that coming. You created such bad karma for yourself I was so angry that my agency had abandoned and betrayed me and then I looked at myself very hard and I said dude you abandoned and betrayed your own family what happened to you from your agency you did that to your wife and your kids when you were selfish when all you cared about was yourself and your personal achievement you abandoned and betrayed them now it's happening to you and you don't like it very much do you the people that loved me and supported me the most, I treated the worst. The battle damage I put on my wife and kids and the self-reflection that I went through where I was just that Jay, that Jay Davis, that Jaybird. Bird, like how humiliating that was and how ashamed I am of the things I did. And all of a sudden, all those things, all those awards and all that uh, acknowledgement that at one point was so important to me had exactly gone the opposite direction and now had no meaning to me. It had no value to me. After 27 years, I literally had storage tubs, multiple storage tubs, cardboard boxes stuffed with commendations and plaques and trophies and praise and acknowledgments and every single one of those is buried somewhere in a landfill. I had no problem loading them in a garbage truck knowing that they were going to be buried in a landfill. That's where I wanted them. I wanted them buried and gone and never to be seen again. And people say, would you do it again? And it doesn't take me but a second to answer yes. Yes, I would do it again. I believed in it, I loved it, I loved my job, I did it the best I could. I would do it better though. I would do it cleaner. I wouldn't scuttle everything that that was important to me, but would I do it again? I would do it again in a second. I would just do it better.
0: Jay Dobbins, for sharing his story of the Snap. After a 27-year career as an undercover agent, Jay won a landmark lawsuit against the ATF in 2014 for the agency's failure to handle threats against him following Operation Black Biscuit. And you can read more about Jay's experiences in his two memoirs, No Angel and Catching Hell. We'll have links on our website, snapjudgment.org. Special thanks to George Christie the Hell's Angels Motorcycle Club did not respond to requests for comment on this story. The original score for this piece was by Dirk Schwartzoff, it was produced by Beau Walsh. Amazing, right? And you already know the power of Snap Storytelling, but others, people you love and care about, might not be so fortunate. What can you do to help? Well, what you can do is take their phone device, snatch it from their fingers, and even while they scream, subscribe them to the incredible Snap Judgment podcast. Bada bing, bada boom! You've just given the gift of story. Is there any other better present? I don't think so. More narrative journeys than you can shake a stick at, Snap Judgment, G. So that was brought to you by the team that can live undercover for years and you would never suspect anything except for the U producer Mr. Mark Ristich. The bunny slippers are a sure giveaway. Nancy Lopez, Pat Miller, Regina Beriaco, David Xme, Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio, Shayna Shealy, Taylor DeCott, Flo Wiley, John Facile, Marissa Dodge, David Kim, Bo Walsh, and Annie Nguyen. This is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you get the free first Thursday of the month chocolate Sunday, from the Dairy King, limit one Sunday while supplies last. And after you eat your last bite, you could then put on your Spider-Man mask and go undercover to get your second free chocolate Sunday, and you
1: would still
0: not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is P.R.